welcome to the Healthcare Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk, and today we're talking about a healthcare concierge app called Health Wallet with Ryan Coplin, the Austin-based co-founder. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to chatting with you. Absolutely. So uh, tell me a little bit about Health Wallet and kind of where this idea came from. Sure. So I'll kind of reverse engineer it. Health Wallet and our familiarity with the healthcare system came out of our original profession, which was uh, employee benefits consulting for different organizations of different shapes and sizes. And so we saw the opportunity just because of how antiquated the healthcare system was to kind of bring some of the services forward in terms of leveraging some of the technology that's available these days. And so Health Wallet came to be from that, which uh, essentially what it does is consolidates a couple of different digital health related services all into one platform that will help the user be able to understand, you know, all of the different nuances associated with their health insurance plan, as well as shop for healthcare, finding costs and quality of different procedures and doctors within their network, and then, um, you know, allowing them to actually talk to different sorts of physicians and providers virtually through the mobile uh, app platform, who can now diagnose and prescribe and, and render healthcare related services you know, in a 21st century sort of virtual kind of capacity. So it's giving a lot more power to patients to be able to, one, shop for the uh, the most cost-effective MRI or X-ray or anything like that within their insurance plan, but then also it's connecting them directly with doctors, and it's not just a messaging or an, or an email system. Like, it's actual, like, is it face-to-face? Uh, it depends on the state. So uh, it's regulated at a statutory level, but yeah. And so in most states, there's definitely a a video element some it's just um, telephonic but concept is the same you know it's replacing the need for them to drive down to the brick and mortar clinic you know in traffic to accommodate what could have been accommodated virtually through today's technology right why the difference i guess between states as as to what's allowed uh, I really think it's just, uh, you know, the healthcare system and concept entirely is extremely antiquated. Mm-hmm. And so over the past, I guess it was, well, I guess it was last year. So last year, 40 states passed over 200 pieces of legislation uh, kind of at their, you know, at their own leisure that are loosening the reins on people's ability to seek and render healthcare services telephonically. And so from a state to state perspective, I think it's really just the speed at which they, number one, have the revelation that they need to loosen the reins and then their ability to get that through the the legal and judiciary environments. So with that change, uh, was that something that that, uh, you guys were monitoring pretty carefully? Definitely. Um, I mean, it's drastically increasing the breadth of services that we can provide in certain environments. And so, you know, it it used to be predominantly only primary care that was delivered uh, telephonically. And now it's, you know, it's getting as far as chronic care management and and actually, in in our opinion, at least not only making it more convenient, but giving there a little bit more of a uh, giving the doctors a little bit more of an ability to increase the frequency in which they see their patients, which has a lot of advantages, especially in disease management and chronic care management and those things where um, the ability to continuously engage them is you know, mutually beneficial. 
but each state kind of tries to keep up with the Joneses. It's really just the speed at which they can do it. There's obviously regulatory and lobbying pressure on the other side of the table, but it, I think it's a force that ultimately is going to, to get its way through uh, all the way, all 50 states. Is it the the healthcare providers that are the big lobbyists against it? No, it's, it's, I mean, to be quite honest, it really is the fact that most people they don't understand the delineation between health care and health insurance. A lot of times they are considered to be the same thing. Uh, yeah. And so from that perspective, there's really only a handful of major players that are driving a lot of this state to state, you know, dynamic and changing um, regulatory scenarios. You know, there's just a lot of, of money and interests representing pharma and insurance carriers and those sort of things. Right. And, you know, they're all for profit businesses at the end of the day, which is kind of fundamentally misaligned. But I'd say that providers actually are starting to realize that there's an ability for them to to deliver care. And then just from a a business perspective, uh, you know, deliver it in a way that's considerably more efficient and profitable because they don't have the overhead associated with running large brick and mortar clinics and those sort of things. So I really think the the pressure is just because it's such an antiquated system and it's so politically polarized. And so navigating that is, is obviously difficult as well. But fortunately slash unfortunately, depending upon how you're looking at it, everybody ultimately is a consumer of the healthcare system in one way or another uh, at some point. And so it's got a pretty significant impact, you know, when, when these things start to change. Right. Well, you mentioned that the providers are, are coming around because they do see that there's great efficiency with being able to uh, telephonically or in sometimes uh, video conference with their patients. I would imagine that there's some concern from doctors that they wouldn't be able to bill accurately for insurance to kind of give them the reimbursement, right? So what I think that doctors are really starting to understand and we're talking more about, you know, primary care, you know, low frequency, low severity sort of healthcare delivery. Those environments, I think, are going to, to realize that they're going to lose customers potentially to more efficient ways, uh, you know, for these people to seek care. So a perfect example is just, you know, there's a lot of retail brick and mortar organizations that are having a real problem with Amazon and the way that it disrupts the industries that they're in. Uh, healthcare is going to be the same way. Now, in the in the more sophisticated sort of practice environments and the ones that require a little bit more of a frequent touch with their customers uh, and their patients, there's a lot of uh, facilities that are starting to understand uh, the scalability associated with doing follow-up appointments with their, you know, their patients post-operation or things of that nature that can be done virtually. And and the frequency in which they can see people daily goes way up as compared to them actually coming in. And then from a provider standpoint too, especially in the specialist sort of environment, there's a pretty significant amount of no-shows. So people that booked an appointment, so they turned away other potential patients because they were booked for the day and then they just never showed up. So from a business standpoint, they never really realized the revenue in this environment. It's, you know, the data and experience has shown that there's a much lower probability people don't show up when it's a phone call or a FaceTime instead of them getting all the way down to the facility. Right. Well, so when we start talking about this prevalence of virtual healthcare, I mean, 
we are talking about the Internet of Things and and how it's making its way into into healthcare. So, as a thought leader in the industry, then do you see this going? This do you see this going the right direction in terms of is it progressing fast enough? Is it progressing the right way? And what are some of the things that you are really keeping an eye on as uh, regulation uh, improves? with virtual healthcare, and then I guess all of those other different things that are associated with it. Yeah, so uh, what we haven't seen a whole lot of yet, which I think has a huge application in today's environment, is Internet of Things when it comes to proactive healthcare strategy and the ability for, you know, generally unaffiliated providers to intervene in a situation where there's some real-time indication that they need to, other than you know the, the person or the patient coming in at a certain time. So like there's a huge application and a lot of venture capital investment right now in proactive sort of cognitive, you know, machines and, and pieces of medical equipment that people can keep at their house or where they live that will integrate from a data standpoint. So the, the immediate application for that really is, is going to give, uh, as long as the information that these, you know, these medical devices are going to be able to, to output is going to be put into an environment to where it has immediate application for a provider to be able to intervene before health really deteriorates. I think that there's a lot of things that we know nowadays in terms of what could be a potential indicator for a health-related event that prior to Internet of Things and virtual healthcare and electronic medical record repository and that sort of stuff, you know, most most unaffiliated providers would have no insight into, you know, how all of these things go together in this particular person's environment, if that makes sense. So I think that we're going to see a ton of that, but we're going in the right direction, I'd say, because we're basically starting from ground zero in Internet of Things, specifically in healthcare. Uh, as long as you know people are able to take that data and the insights and put them in an, you know, in a way that can be interpreted and is actionable to and has real application in in healthcare, then it'll be you know a little bit. A more impactful and less of a novelty than it might be in certain Internet of Things kind of situations. So that usability of the data that's available, do you mean with that amount of data available for for providers creating some type of system that is a more active alerting system without you having to physically go into each file and say, okay, well, here's patient A, here's patient B. I guess I'm curious, though, does something like that even exist where it's it's actively alerting sort of it's very fragmented so um the reason why i think and the best indicator for how this is going to trickle into healthcare uh, i think is a great example of i'm pretty sure that it was one of the new phones that they they literally released last week has a feature that if you and i mean this is kind of some big brother level uh uh data gathering ability but if you have that device and it appears that you have fallen down, it will send you a notice. And if you don't waive that notice, mm-hmm. it will call the authorities in the emergency. So that coming out embedded as a, you know, in a hardware sort of device, like a smartphone, I think is the best indicator for how some of this stuff may ultimately apply 
uh, and how it could be actionable. One thing that certainly exists right now is, you know, the ability to pull from electronic medical record repositories and then use tools to analyze that. So, you know, if we've seen somebody who goes in for a uh, high blood pressure and then doesn't fill their, their superstatin or their Crestor or their Lipitor for a couple months in a row, you know, that would be something that the care team would probably like to know and have some ability to be proactive with. Yeah. And I think it may have been the Apple Watch that that had that that fall indicator. Yeah. And one thing I was I actually was really impressed by was it had at least a primitive electrocardiogram capability. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I thought that was interesting, actually. That is fascinating. And, and it kind of big brother a little bit. So my question is, how do we kind of keep this increased connectivity and information? How do we keep it safe with that that level of sensitivity? Well, I think that they've tried to do as good of a job as they can in terms of just managing HIPAA and the compliance necessary to be considered um, HIPAA compliant and all of the things that you have to do from a data privacy and security standpoint. You know, I think as long as they can, you know, they can navigate that process in a way that makes sure that, number one, the data collection element is redacted, so it's not tied to a specific individual, mm-hmm. or they've done that in a HIPAA sort of environment to where that person has acknowledged through whatever legal necessary process that they're, you know, they're sharing their HIPAA personal health information specific um, data with designated parties through what they call a business associate agreement. Um, there may be a consumer facing version of that same concept, but essentially it's it's whenever you go to the doctor these days, you also have to sign that HIPAA acknowledgement that says, I know that you're getting my HIPAA info, same process. Right. Now, keeping the data secure is a fundamentally different concept. Um, now, you know, that's something that even the most sophisticated of companies and organizations are having some serious problems with. So I'd say we get to watch how that plays out. But I think that when it comes to just the ability to have some immediate level of responsiveness and notify, you know, the people that would really be able to help in a life threatening situation, I think that there's a, you know, there's a lot of application for that and probably consumer sentiment would be, would be generally well received. I'm curious, I mean, as, as a young, healthy guy, you know, you may not be that, uh, that interested in the fall detection or failure to comply with your cholesterol meds. But what about this technology and this possibility of IoT most excites you, I guess, for your own use? Well, for my own use, I mean, I wouldn't say that there's a particularly exciting part of it for me personally as a consumer, but as a practitioner of healthcare strategy, especially when it comes to large organizations, you know, part of where our whole concept of health wallet and all of this sort of came to be is because a lot of what we did is, is we helped organizations instead of buy health insurance from the health insurers, we helped them to understand the the concepts of looking at potentially self-funding their employee benefit programs. And so there's a natural paradigm shift mentally when you get into that environment and the companies become a little bit more of a population health management organization, just from the perspective of managing employee benefit cost. Um, Because like I said earlier, there's a clear delineation between health insurance and health care. And most people don't know that or recognize that. And so 
I think that from a fiduciary standpoint, it's particularly exciting to me to be able to find out which of these connected devices are going to have material impact, not only financially, but also, you know, increasing people's ability to access the care that they need as soon as they need it in the most efficient ways available. And what's what's naturally interesting is, you know, the growing prevalence of those sort of things of proactive medicine and virtual healthcare delivery both have a direct correlation to combating cost of healthcare because they're helping to deliver those services in a much more efficient capacity. And then 80% of healthcare cost comes from 20% of medical claims or, or events. And so most of them are the catastrophic and, you know, I don't want to make an overly general statement when I say this, but there are quite a bit of these that could have been uh, mitigated if there was a, a little bit more of a proactive sort of ability to monitor. So those are particularly interesting to me, you know, because of the fiduciary element associated with just like providing a couple hundred employees health insurance, which can be in the millions of dollars annually. Well, and a lot of it, like you said, a lot of people don't understand the the clear delineation between healthcare and health insurance. In by that same token, then they don't know whether a health event is a primary care, like a, a doc in a box or an emergency care or a wait for a doctor's appointment. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's oftentimes when you're not very familiar or comfortable with those concepts, that's, I think, when people end up going to the emergency room because they're like, well, I, you know, I don't want to take a chance and no one can blame them for doing that. But if they're able to kind of have more, I guess, power over the entire healthcare process, including being able to shop for and see the costs ahead of time, that's helpful. Definitely. So the the major catalyst for the increased healthcare costs in the aggregate is um, consumerism and stewardship behavior. So you really hit the nail on the head. That's what I would consider to be one of the most primary examples of of I just didn't know where to go, so I went there, and it has substantially different implications not only to them personally, financially, but also to, you know, the business, if they happen to be looking at, you know, getting their insurance from a company benefit plan or something. And a a perfect example would be, I have a migraine on Saturday and my primary care facility is closed. So I go to Concentra or urgent care or whatever's close enough to me to hit it with a rock because they're everywhere these days. And after services are rendered, oops, to my surprise, that's an emergency room from the health insurance company's perspective. And so, you know, cue the deductible. (laughs) There's just a lot of confusion and putting any type of information, additional information to the consumer's hand will help that process. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. Most definitely. And thanks to you listeners for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries. Subscribe to articles, podcasts, and video. Until next time, I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk.